Hello, and welcome to the Superhero by Design Masterclass Series. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with and learning from Mark Gobes Gober. You might remember him from such episodes such as Consciousness and the Upside Down Thinking. He is a multi-time author and knows pretty much everything when it comes to consciousness. So I asked him to come back on and he was polite enough to come back on and teach everybody about consciousness. And just for those listeners, I have been in a deep dive in this subject for the past few months. And there is nobody that I have personally met that knows more about this than Mark. So you are in for a treat if you are interested or don't even know anything about consciousness and want to know more. So good morning, Mark. Great having you on again. Ace, thank you for having me. And I appreciate the kind words. Oh, man, I I just appreciate you coming back on. Our last episode was amazing. And I can't wait to learn more about everything consciousness. So without further ado, go right ahead, man. Okay, so I'm going to be talking about consciousness and in particular, how it pertains to the nature of reality that we inhabit. So very big topics that we'll go through quickly. But before we do that, I want to just briefly give my background in terms of how I even got here. Um, I went to Princeton undergrad, worked in investment banking in New York, became a partner at a Silicon Valley strategy firm. So I give that preface because we're going to talk about some topics that might sound a little bit crazy. And I didn't always have these kinds of opinions. Uh, While I was working in Silicon Valley in 2016, I was listening to podcasts and came across information like we're going to be talking about today. And the more I looked into it, the more I realized I had to completely change my worldview. So here we are nearly seven years later, and I've written now five books. I ended up leaving my firm because I wanted to pursue this stuff full time. Um, my, my general sense is that as a society, there is just so much about the nature of reality that we're not ordinarily taught. So I hope today's presentation gives a glimpse. I alluded in my personal story to my old worldview, which now I would call materialism. At the time, I wouldn't have called it that. But basically, it it is as follows. If you can see on your screen here, I'm showing a diagram that's adapted from the work of Dr. Dean Radin. And materialism is the prevailing worldview, actually, for much of academia and mainstream media. Much of mainstream society today, especially in the West, tends to believe this outside of spiritual and religious traditions. It says 13.8 billion years ago, there was an event that started the universe. Some call it the Big Bang, and it filled the universe with pieces of matter. Some call those atoms. So you have lots of atoms and other uh, accumulations of atoms, so bigger pieces of matter, interacting with each other in this big universe. And we call the interactions of pieces of matter chemistry. So we started with matter, now you have chemistry, and when you have lots of random chemical reactions in a big universe, chance tells us that over time you'll eventually get a molecule that can replicate itself. So that would be like DNA. So we started started with matter, now we got came to chemistry, and now we're at biological organisms which come from the self-replicating molecule. Over time, through a random evolutionary process, human beings and other biological beings emerge, which develop brains, and from the brain pops out consciousness. Consciousness could be considered our sense of experiencing, our subjective inner awareness. If I were to say to you, I am speaking right now, the I in that sentence is what I mean by consciousness, that real sense of self, but it's not a physical thing, so it's it's a difficult thing to describe. In any event, materialism, which was my old worldview, it's the mainstream worldview of a lot of academia and media, says that consciousness comes from the brain, and more generally, that consciousness comes from matter. 
the implications of this are, well, what happens if you have, you don't have a brain anymore? If your body dies, that's the end of consciousness. Um, so this model would predict that there is no survival of consciousness after death. There's no life after death, nothing like that. That's all superstition according to materialism. So this worldview ultimately breeds atheism or agnosticism, which is basically where I was. I used to think that life is fundamentally random and meaningless. And that's the, the materialist view that I thought science was actually moving us toward. I thought that anything spiritual was just superstition that we had advanced past. As I started researching, I was very surprised to learn that this connection between the brain and consciousness that materialism holds true is actually in question. And even if you talk to mainstream scientists, they will say this is known as the hard problem of consciousness. We don't know how a brain could create consciousness. Now, why is that a hard problem? If you think about consciousness, it is not something physical. I can't touch my consciousness, but I can touch my chair. I can touch my leg. The body and the world are physical entities, whereas consciousness is non-physical. And th that's the big question. How could something non-physical like consciousness come out of something physical like a brain or a body or a material world? Science does not know the answer to that question. And actually, Science Magazine, a very mainstream outlet, put out its top 25 questions remaining in all of science for its 125th anniversary issue. And as you can see on the screen, the number two question on the list what is the biological basis of consciousness? In other words, how is it that our biology is creating this non-physical consciousness thing? But I want you to note something. In that question, what is the biological basis of consciousness? There's an assumption. There's an assumption that there is a biological basis of consciousness. So that's a preview for where we're going. We're going to be questioning that very basic idea. So if you believe that the brain creates consciousness, you would probably think that you need to have a lot of brain activity in order to have a major consciousness experience. That there would be a, a strong correlation between the type of brain activity that someone has and the type of conscious experience they have. And we know that from neuroscience, there are correlations for sure. So let's say a person gets in a car accident and damages the part of the brain responsible for vision. And, and that person then has problems seeing. We can say, look, these parts of the brain were activated and changed. And now the person has a corresponding change in vision, a corresponding change in consciousness. There's a tight correlation between brain activity and consciousness. And that's why many people think, well, the brain must create consciousness. Here's the key point. Correlation does not necessarily imply causation. That's what they say in statistics. I, I'll use an analogy from Dr. Bernardo Castrop, a philosopher. He says, imagine if you have a fire, lots of firefighters show up to put it out. If you have a bigger fire, there are more firefighters that come to put out the fire. He asked the question, should we say that because there's a strong correlation between the size of the fire and the number of firefighters that show up, that the firefighters are causing the fire? No, <laughs> there is another explanation to explain that correlation. And that's what I want to explore here with the brain and consciousness. Yes, the brain is connected to consciousness, but maybe the brain isn't producing it. Maybe the brain is doing something different. And one analogy that I've often referenced is maybe the brain is like an antenna. So it is receiving and transmitting consciousness. And in the same way that if you have an antenna on your television set and you're watching a TV show and then you take a hammer and smash the antenna, what happens? The show that you're watching on the screen, it appears very fuzzy. But the signal that the television antenna was picking up has not been damaged. All that's been damaged is the apparatus responsible for processing that signal. 
And the analogy here is the brain is like that antenna processor. Another analogy, which relates to the slide I have up, is that the brain could be likened to a filtering mechanism or a blindfold, meaning there's a broader reality out there, but the brain is getting in the way. And when you get the brain out of the way, there's more consciousness, which is totally counter to the idea that the brain is creating consciousness because people would think, well, you need more brain activity to have more consciousness. That is not always the case. So there are a few anomalies here that I want to briefly mention. One is the near-death experience. These are instances when a person is in extreme physiological harm, like cardiac arrest, a person's in clinical death, and yet when they're resuscitated, they come back and say, my consciousness was not only active during that time, but I saw things that were realer than real life. I had omnidirectional 360-degree vision, for example. This does not match the pattern you'd expect because a person has little or no brain functioning and more consciousness. Could it be that that happens because the brain had been getting in the way of these other realities? And that's our ordinary living experience is that we get a sliver of reality and our brain's sort of blocking it. That's one possibility. We see it in near-death experiences. Psychedelics. Instances when a person has an enriched consciousness during a trip. There are some emerging studies suggesting that during the trip, um, the brain functioning is reduced in certain areas of the brain. So less brain, more consciousness. Savant syndrome. These are instances when a person has extraordinary memory or um, mathematical abilities, musical abilities. There's a movie called Rain Man with Dustin Hoffman, and he plays a character, uh, um, a man named Kim Peek, who was a real person. And he, he was a savant. He had these amazing abilities. And at the same time, he had deficiencies in his brain. So we see this a lot with savants. They're, they have a distorted brain in certain ways, less brain, more consciousness. Interesting. Terminal lucidity is another one. Instances in which a person, let's say, has had Alzheimer's for years, can't remember things, and then shortly before dying, just snaps back into clarity and starts having normal conversations with full memory. So we know the person had a damaged brain and a normal consciousness. This pattern, less brain, more consciousness, would fit the idea that the brain is a filter. And actually, if you're interested in learning more, there's a, a paper in Scientific American that you can access online called Transcending the Brain by Dr. Bernardo Castro. It goes through a number of these examples, which I don't hear talked about enough. It really challenges the view that the brain is creating consciousness. So the hard problem of consciousness, again, was how could the brain create consciousness? Well, maybe it's a hard problem because we've asked the wrong question. Maybe the brain is not producing consciousness at all. And if it's not producing consciousness, then how does it fit into that framework? And this is just an approximation, what I'm showing on the screen here. It's a two-dimensional approximation for something that's probably way more complex. But you'll see that consciousness is at the base of this triangle rather than at the top. In other words, consciousness is the basis of reality. The material world exists. Chemistry exists. Biology exists. Neuroscience exists. But they all exist within consciousness. So it's a reversal. This is why my first book's called An End to Upside Down Thinking. I regard materialism as upside down thinking. And I'm flipping it by saying consciousness doesn't come from matter. Matter comes from consciousness. And in fact, some of the early quantum physicists, which is a, a branch of physics that totally is counterintuitive and challenges many mainstream ideas, Max Planck, Nobel Prize winner in 1931, he said this very thing. He said, I regard consciousness as fundamental. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. This is a very big deal. This is a total flip in terms of how to look at life. And if you've never heard this before, I would just want to appreciate that it could be 
jarring to think about life this way. It was disorienting for me and has taken a lot of time to sort of like readjust myself to this possibility. Um, another way to think about this is it comes from a quote from Erwin Schrodinger, who's also a Nobel Prize winning physicist. He said, in truth, there is only one mind. It's the same idea, one consciousness that is underlying all of reality. To double click on that a bit, Dr. Bernardo Castro, this is the same philosopher I mentioned, he says that all of reality could be likened to a stream of water where water represents consciousness and each of us is a whirlpool within the stream. So we had the sense of having an individual consciousness, but we're also part of a collective. Now, if that is true, then think about the implications. If some of the water from my whirlpool were to get into your whirlpool, that would be like some of my consciousness getting into your consciousness. That would be like a psychic ability or a telepathic ability. In other words, this framework would say psychic phenomena, that, that's not paranormal, that's expected. So we're going to look into that in a second. Um, the second implication is, what if a whirlpool delocalizes? It stops being a whirlpool, the water flows back into the broader stream. The analogy here is that when the physical body dies, consciousness doesn't die, it simply transitions into a new form. So the notion of life after death, that is not paranormal under this framework of reality. So one of the things that I've done in my books, especially my first book in Into Upside Down Thinking, is I make the argument that if one of those sort of quote unquote anomalies is true, whether it's psychic phenomena or survival of consciousness after bodily death, if one is true, materialism can't work. It can't handle those anomalies. Whereas the one mind whirlpools in a stream can easily accommodate this sort of thing. And I also have a podcast series called Where Is My Mind, where I've interviewed many of the scientists who study these things. And, and the short version is there's just so much evidence. I won't have that much time to go through all of it, but it's, it blew my mind when I first started because I thought I, I had a decent education and yet there was the science I'd never heard of. So I'm just going to briefly flip through a few examples. One is a paper published in 2018 in American Psychologist. This is the official peer-reviewed academic journal of the American Psychological Association. So mainstream journal. The researcher here, Dr. Etzel Cardenia, aggregated the statistical evidence for psychic abilities over many decades and many researchers. And he finds that there is statistical evidence that is comparable to the statistical evidence that we see in other areas of science where it's already been accepted. So right there, I mean, that is powerful that they're finding statistical evidence for psychic abilities. Now, that's not to say that human beings are 100% psychic. In, rather, they're psychic beyond what chance would predict. So instead of guessing correctly on something, let's say 25% of the time, if they were asked to do a psychic task, they might guess correctly 32% of the time. But statistically speaking, that's known as what's six sigma results, especially when you have many trials. Six sigma means the odds that this is happening due to chance alone is more than a billion to one, more than a billion to one against chance. In other words, these are accepted phenomena in science if it were not in such a crazy domain. Like if you just saw this in psychology or some other domain, you'd say, oh, that's a real thing. But because this is so controversial, there's been uh, much more suppression and it's been harder to get the word out. That Six Sigma result, by the way, it comes from a book by Dr. Dean Radin. He goes through the statistical evidence there too. It's called Real Magic. Here's another paper published in Frontiers in Psychology. Again, getting some mainstream attention. What if consciousness is not an emergent property of the brain? And as of recently, it has over 30,000 views, which scientists tell me is a big deal in terms of the attention it's getting. And now one of my personal favorites, a quote from Dr. Jessica Utz, she was the 2016 president of the American Statistical 
Association. So this is a hardcore statistician, statistics professor. She says, using the standards applied to any other area of science, it is concluded that psychic functioning has been well established. And remember my argument before, if one of the phenomena, one of the anomalies is true, materialism's got problems, whereas the one mind whirlpools in a stream is much more reasonable as a framework for reality. So just in a few minutes, I hope you see there's a lot of evidence. I briefly want to show you something else. These are declassified pages from the U.S. government, from the CIA. They were running a psychic spying program using remote viewing. Remote viewing is when you can see with the mind something that's far away in space and time. So they were using this for national security. It's been declassified. And look, they hear, they talk about psychoenergetics, which remote viewing, describing things, uh, using mental processes, and then also remote action, which is influencing things with the mind alone. That's called psychokinesis. So the government's talking about this. And what do they say here? Remote viewing is a real phenomenon. Well, according to my argument that I've tried to make for myself, if one anomaly is true, materialism's got problems. And they're saying remote viewing is a real phenomenon. And they spent roughly $25 million. That's what's been publicly disclosed. And I interviewed one of the men who ran this program in the 1970s, Russell Targ. So when I talked to people who were involved in the program, they said it was absolutely real. Here's a science panel that went through it. So you can see some of the credible scientists that evaluated this stuff. And their report from the science panel, implications are revolutionary, evidence too impressive to dismiss as mere coincidence. So just right there, you see there's a lot of evidence. Uh, we didn't get to talk about telepathy, mind-to-mind communication. There is evidence for that. Precognition, which is knowing or sensing the future before it happens. There's also this category of survival of bodily death. Um, briefly, near-death experiences, I, I mentioned what those are before. There are instances in which the person's consciousness hovers over the body while the person's body is dead, or clinically dead. And then upon being resuscitated, the person says to the doctor or to family members, oh, I saw you doing this or I heard this and from a vantage point outside the body. So how would that be possible if consciousness is stuck in the brain, especially when the brain is barely functioning or not functioning at all? The person is seeing things that are accurate from outside the body. In other words, those experiences, they're called veridical out-of-body experiences. In other words, verified memories. A verified memory is not a hallucination. That would suggest that there is a functioning consciousness without a functioning body or brain which opens the possibility to the idea that consciousness lives on when the body dies. Communications with the deceased, I'm referring here to uh, studies done at the Windbridge Research Center. They've done studies with mediums. These are people who claim they can talk to dead people or get information about dead people. And uh, there is statistical evidence that they can do this. The Windbridge Research Center's studies use five levels of blinding to try to control for all the things that skeptics would say, well, no, you could the person was cheating, basically. The way they do it is they have the researcher, her name is Dr. Julie Beischel. She gets on the phone with uh, the person claiming to be able to talk to dead people and gives the first name of someone else's deceased relative. And then the medium has to give answers. And statistically, the medium has been able to do it, which is crazy, I know. And the last one, children who remember previous lives. I'm referring to research at the University of Virginia. They've looked at over 2,500 cases of young children between the ages of two and five or six years old who have very distinct memories of a life that is not their own. And in many cases, the researchers are able to find historical records that align with what the child is describing. And in some cases, the children even have birthmarks or physical defects 
that align with how the child is alleged to have died in the previous life. In other words, there's like a physical transference, which I know sounds wild. Let me show you one picture of that. This comes from a book called Where Reincarnation and Biology Intersect by Dr. Ian Stevenson at the University of Virginia. This was a girl he studied whose natural leg was shaped in that manner, which does not look like a normal leg. She says, uh, Grandpa, look at what they did to me, how cruel they were. She described being tied up in ropes and murdered, unfortunately, in this past life. And in fact, there was a person who died in the very manner that she described. And her leg was shaped in the manner that corresponds with this alleged previous life. So whatever we are to make of all these examples that I give, what I'm trying to say is all you need is one example and materialism has problems. So that's where my paradigm shift has come in. I don't know if everything is real. I just think that there's too much evidence and it seems like at least one of them is real. And that leads to a, a fundamental paradigm shift in the way we view reality and the way we view ourse ourselves. If you believe materialism, which I did, that means your identity is your body. And when your body dies, that's the end. If you believe the one mind, that means your body is a vessel. You are a receiver of consciousness and consciousness works through you. So your identity is your consciousness. Your body is just the vessel, the vehicle to embody that identity. Complete reversal. And before I close and open it up to questions, Ace, I want to give one example that has had a profound impact on my life. In near-death experiences, which I mentioned, there are lots of reasons to believe these are not just hallucinations, as I mentioned, and I could go into that for an hour. But let's just assume that they're not hallucinations in near-death experience. People report in 25-ish percent of the time that they review their whole life during that near-death experience. And they review it not only through their own eyes, but they become all of the people that they have impacted during their life. For my podcast series, Where Is My Mind? I interviewed a man named Daniel Brinkley, who has had four near-death experiences. He was struck by lightning, had open-heart surgery twice, brain surgery once. Each time he had a life review where he started his life from the beginning and he became all of the people that he impacted, including his time during Vietnam when he was in combat. And he said, Mark, I was vicious. He became the people that he killed during his life review. So he got to see what it was like to be that person who was dying in combat. And he also felt the indirect effects. He became the children who no longer had a father because he had killed the father and he felt the pain of the children. So his life changed dramatically, like many people in these positions. He became a hospice volunteer. His priorities shifted. And in his later life reviews, because he had these crazy open heart surgeries, you know, he kept having emergencies. He had more life reviews in near-death experiences. He got to feel what it was like to be the person dying in hospice. And he got to see what it was like as he comforted that person. So you feel the good things and the bad things, apparently, in terms of how you make people feel. And my last comment here is that people who have a life review, they often say that the little things are the big things in the life review. So you pay attention to things that don't seem so important in your everyday living life, but in the life review, you pay attention maybe to the way you treated the cashier in line rather than how big was your house. That sort of thing doesn't matter in the life review. So with that, I will pause, Ace. Oh my goodness. No, I, I really appreciate you sharing all this. Your, your, your knowledge on this subject is just, it's insane. And for everybody listening, if you want more information on Mark or check out his books, go to superhero by design forward slash Mark spelled M-A-R-K. When you were talking there about the near death experiences and all of that, there's a book that I read years ago called The Five People You Meet in Heaven. And it was a similar thing where when somebody passed away, they got to experience five people that they met during their lives and the impact that they had both 
good and bad. And the question that was going through my head this whole time is, I'm I'm big on consciousness. Everything you just said, that's how I start to view the world. But for those of you who are listening out there, you might be thinking, okay, all of this evidence is great, but what does this all mean for me? And so mm-hmm. can you touch a little bit on how your life has changed, how your view of life and how you go about treating people? Uh, you, you had talked a little bit about it at the end, but if you could go into how this has changed your life and how you approach life, um, I, w- I would love to hear that. Sure. Well, I started off as a materialist, believing that life is random and meaningless. And if you believe that to be true, the only meaning that you can create is just you're in your own mind. It's a rationalization. There's no meaning built into the fabric of reality. Whereas if the one mind consciousness-ish, you know, whirlpools and a stream is true, then there seems to be an underlying intelligence, meaning that there is meaning built into the fabric of reality. And we see from the life review, they're talking about the golden rule effectively. And Dr. Bruce Grayson from UVA, when he interviews people that come back from these experiences as a psychiatrist, he says, number one, they're, they're profoundly changed, which is significant to him because you don't just see that sort of thing with a random hallucination. But also he says this golden rule that they're talking about, it is beyond morality. It's actually natural law. That's what Dr. Grayson from UVA is writing in his book. It's called After, a recent book he published. So, wow, if there's natural law built into the fabric of reality and you're trying to orient your compass for how to live, that is a, there's a big shift for me. So it's like, I don't care what I think personally, there's a lot of evidence. So I've got to go with that evidence in terms of how I think about my priorities. And it's, I'm really glad you asked that question, Ace, because I, you're, you're kind of tracking my own trajectory. And maybe some of your audience members are going to be on this trajectory too. First, you learn the evidence. And you're like, whoa, this might be real. Whoa, actually, I do think it's real. And then it's like, oh, what are the implications? That's been my journey. And my second book is called An End to Upside Down Living, where I talk about, well, how do you live life? Because I'm trying to figure that out too. And there is an awakening journey that I spent a lot of time studying where um, there are pitfalls that happen. It's not all just love and light because that is something people describe in a near-death experience, unconditional love. There, it, there is duality in this world that we exist. There's good and evil. There's deception. There's manipulation. There's also saintly behavior. There's really good stuff. So navigating this sense of oneness and unity in the context of duality where there's variety and learning how to discern to have a lot of compassion, but also to be discerning and not let everything into your life and have boundaries. Those nuances are what come next. That's what I found. So it's like, is it real? Okay, it is real. Life is fundamentally benevolent, but also there's duality and good and evil. How do I navigate all that? So I don't have a, I don't have an exact answer in terms of how I navigate life, but my compass is sort of like in this direction now. I have a direction and it's trying to refine its way. Whereas before I was like over here and unclear. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I I have a similar journey to yours. Like I was a pretty nihilist when I was younger, just didn't care about anything, didn't think life had much meaning to it. And making that shift is huge. I like to see this lifetime kind of as like a training ground for what's beyond this life, because it's, it's a very selfish, very shallow way of thinking that if I have maybe at best a hundred years on this planet, that's such a short amount of time. And if you're so concerned about me, 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 or material things, things like that, you're going to live a very shallow, a very unhappy life. So I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you once again for coming on. Everybody listening, check out his books, 
They are incredible. You can find them on superhero by design forward slash Mark. And man, I can't wait. I know this isn't going to be the last time we talk. So I just really appreciate you coming on again. And I can't wait to see what you write about next. (laughs) Well, Ace, thank you for having me. And thanks for all that you're doing. I appreciate it. Awesome. Well, that wraps up the masterclass with Mark Gobes Gober, everything on consciousness. Stay tuned for the next episode. We've got a great masterclass series coming up. And with that said, Ace out.